These lectures are based on the scripture series, The Bible and the Church Fathers, prepared by the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. For more information on the St. Paul Center, you can go to their website at www.salvationhistory.com. I dedicate this series to Deacon Vince Trainer, who passed suddenly last December. Deacon was a regular participant in these scripture studies and often told me this one on the Church Fathers is the one he was particularly looking forward to attending. I like to think of Vince as now getting to know the Church Fathers firsthand in heaven. And now, the Bible and the Church Fathers, Lesson 6, Fathers and Martyrs. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit instructs the hearts of the faithful, Grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolations through Christ our Lord. Amen. The St. Paul Center asked me to read this. This particular class is based on a book titled The Faith of Our Fathers, Why the Early Christians Still Matter and Always Will by Mike Aquilina. And he's the, he's the author of the, the book on the Church Fathers that, uh, that we're reading in this class. So the St. Paul Center wants to thank Mike and Emmaus Road Publishing for allowing them and us to use this material. Last week, we talked about mystagogy, which is the teaching of the mysteries of Christ to newly baptized believers, and that the mystagogy isn't just an explanation of the mystery hidden in Scripture, it's also our participation in those mysteries in the liturgy. But it is not just confined to the liturgy, because... Mystagogy deals with every aspect of our life. That's what the sacraments do. They affect, should affect, every area of our lives. So that's why in this final session, we're going to look at how the church fathers show us what it means to live in the mystery of Christ. What does it ultimately mean to be incorporated into Christ through the sacraments? And how should that reality impact the way we live day to day? We'll start by going back to John Chrysostom. In our last session, we discussed this mystagogy of marriage, how our marriages are meant to be holy, leading us into the mystery of God by imaging the life of the Trinity. By giving themselves completely, one to the other, the spouses become icons of the life-giving love of God. And from a religious perspective, we understand an icon, which is something that's more prevalent and prominent in the Eastern churches, but which is kind of creeping into our Western churches. Icons are seen as windows into a deeper reality. So in this case, marriage as an icon would image the life-giving love of God. So John Chrysostom was insistent that our reception of the sacraments should deeply affect the way we live our lives, making us say more, more perfect or more transparent icons of the reality of God that it's imaging. So baptism and Eucharist, which are two of the sacraments of initiation, he explained, unite us with the mystical body of Christ. As such, he continued, we should be living our marriages with the same self-giving love with which Christ lives his. So John Chrysostom went on to apply this truth in in very practical terms to the life of the married couples in his congregation. For example, condemning contraception and abortion as incompatible with Christian marriage. And this is a quote from John Chrysostom. Why do you sow where the field is eager to destroy the fruit? Where are the medicines of sterility? 
where there is murder before birth. Indeed, it is something worse than murder, and I do not know what to call it. For woman does not kill what is formed, but prevents its formation. What then? Do you despise the gift of God and fight with his law? So obviously the truth that we are, Im- we are the image of God and follow his laws does not just apply to marriage, but also to every area of our lives. It's important to live holy lives because, as John Chrysostom says, we don't want to do things that would render us in some way unworthy of the graces and blessings that we're receiving in the sacrament. And now, so not surprisingly then, in addition to contraception and abortion, he condemns other immoral behaviors, saying all of these things render us unworthy to receive Christ. We can't embrace Christ in the sacraments if we do these things. There are times when it feels like God is asking a lot of us when it comes to the moral law, and that conforming our lives to Christ is an impossible task in this day and age. But, compared to the first Christians, we in this country, at least as of now, have it pretty easy. Uh, So let's take a look at what those early Christians were up against. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning of the church in the first century. It's there that we encounter some of the earliest examples of those who truly conform themselves to Christ, the martyrs. Thirty years after Christ, the world remained under the rule of Rome. During the tenth year of Nero's reign, Emperor Nero's reign, and this was in the 60s, a great fire consumed much of the city. Nero had been eager to do some urban redevelopment, which included building a palace for himself. The problem was that many of the buildings were standing in his way, and many of those buildings were wooden tenements which housed Rome's poor and working class. So very suspicious, this fire. And to Rome's citizens, the fire did seem a bit too convenient for Nero's purposes, and his delight in watching the blaze didn't relieve anyone's suspicion. Uh, legend has it that he played his violin and recited poetry while Rome burned. So, to put an end to those suspicions, Nero needed to make it look like he wasn't responsible. We would say he needed a scapegoat, and he chose to blame the Christians. And the crime that they were charged with wasn't arson or treason or conspiracy, but it was hatred of humanity. So their, their logic was, by worshiping Jesus alone, they were ignoring all the Roman gods. And by ignoring the Roman gods, they were jeopardizing the welfare of Rome. We don't even know the names of these first Roman martyrs. Uh, nor does the pagan historian Tacitus tell, Tacitus tell us why they were willing to die rather than renounce their faith. But this should be an important question for us to consider. Why did those martyrs do this? Maybe more importantly, what prepared them to face death so bravely? And just as an interesting tidbit, tomorrow is the feast of the first Roman martyrs. So we'll remember our, I guess, our ancestors in the faith tomorrow if you go to church. So why did the martyrs do this, and what prepared them to face this death so bravely? The book of Acts gives us a clue, and we're going to have a reading from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 38 to 42. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is made to you and to your children, and to all those far off, whomever the Lord our God will call. He testified with many other arguments and was exhorting them, Save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized, 
and about 3,000 persons were added that day. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to the communal life, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayer. So the clue to the answer comes in that last line. The apostles' teaching, and I think that, that verse says communal life, some say fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. In other words, that was the early way of describing the Mass and the Eucharist. So that line is really a small snapshot of the early church. Now, unfortunately, we don't know as much about those first Christians as we would like to know. They were a small group without much wealth. They had little social or political status and were often forced to operate underground. What's more, over the next 250 years, imperial and local governments tried fairly regularly to wipe out all traces of Christianity. They persecuted and killed the Christians, they destroyed their books, and they destroyed or confiscated their possessions. That means all we have left are the handful of documents that survived and which consists mostly of sermons, letters, and liturgies. Yet, what we do see in those surviving documents and what we find in the archaeological digs both confirm all that we learn in the Acts of the Apostles, that is, the first Christians devoted themselves to the apostolic teaching, to the communion, communal life, fellowship, and to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. That is, they devoted themselves to the Mass for the Mass is where all those actions come together. The celebration of the liturgy is how Christians identify themselves as Christians. As the church moved outward from Jerusalem, this is what the believers did. They offered the Mass. That is, in fact, what the apostles promoted as the church grew. Not because they thought it was a good idea necessarily, but rather because this is what Christ told them to do at the Last Supper. Christ instituted the Eucharist and told them to do this in remembrance of me. The apostles listened, and the Mass became what the early church was all about. They understood that everything that was good in Christian life flowed naturally and supernaturally from the one great Eucharistic reality in the Mass, including martyrdom. So martyr was the term the Christians applied to their fellow believers who were victims of persecution. They called them martyrs or martyres in Latin, which literally means witnesses in a court of law. To the martyrs, the early Christians gave a reverence matched only by their reverence for the Eucharist. In fact, the early Christians used the same language to describe martyrdom as they used to describe the Eucharist. We see this in the New Testament book of Revelation, when John describes his vision of heaven. And we're going to have a reading from uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. Then this world opened the fifth seal. I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the witness, therefore, to the word of God. Under the altar, those who had been sacrificed, souls of the martyrs. So Jesus, who bore witness to God, we understand as a sacrifice on the altar. And there, under the altar of sacrifice, were the martyrs, the witnesses, those who sacrificed their lives for Christ. So that image of sacrifice, in a sense, brings it together. In those first generations of the church, the most common phrase used to describe the Mass was the sacrifice. Both the Didache and St. Ignatius of Antioch referred to the Mass as, quote, the sacrifice. 
and all this made complete sense to the early Christians. We discussed in a previous lesson that the death of Christ was connected to the Passover he celebrated at the Last Supper. The cross was the sacrifice of the Lamb of God that ended the need for all other sacrifices. It really fulfilled the Passover sacrifice, which was ongoing, so it didn't have to continue. Jesus' one-time sacrifice now is represented on the altar at Mass. And yet, Christians understood that martyrdom too was in a sense, the sacrifice or a sacrifice in the same sense as Christ's sacrifice. So in 107 AD, when Ignatius of Antioch described his own impending execution, he imaged it in Eucharistic terms. He said he was like the wine at the offertory. To the Roman church, the church in Rome, he wrote, grant me nothing more than that I be poured out to God while an altar is still ready. Later in the same letter he wrote, Let me be food for the wild beast through whom I can reach God. I am God's wheat, ground fine by the lion's teeth to make me purest bread for Christ. Ignatius is bread and wine, his martyrdom is a sacrifice, and it's a kind of Eucharist. Ignatius' friend also died a martyr's death. Polycarp was bishop of Smyrna and had been converted <coughs> by the Apostle John himself. Although recognized for his loving spirit, Polycarp was not one to mince words. When the heretic Marcion asked the bishop Polycarp if he recognized him, like, you know, I'm so important, you recognize me, right? Polycarp replied, of course I recognize the offspring of Satan. Uh, but because of his piety and direct connection to the apostles, he was known and respected all over the Christian world, and not just by the laity. He was even consulted by Pope Anistus to help resolve the date for the celebration of Easter. Polycarp lived a holy life and died that way too. In 155, at the age of 86, he was condemned to die because he wouldn't worship the emperor. So we're going we're gonna to read about Polycarp's uh, martyrdom because uh, Polycarp's secretary wrote down a detailed account of uh, Polycarp's martyrdom. And his account is one of the more famous of its kind. And it describes Polycarp's martyrdom, like his friend Ignatius, as a kind of Eucharist. And these are some quotes. They did not nail him, talking about Polycarp, but simply bound him. And he placing his hands behind him, and being bound like a distinguished ram, taken out of a great flock for sacrifice, and prepared to be an acceptable burnt offering unto God looked up to heaven and said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of thy beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of thee, the God of angels and powers and of every creature, and of the whole race of the righteous who live before thee, I give thee thanks that thou hast counted me worthy of this day and this hour, that I should have a part in the number of thy martyrs in the cup of thy Christ to the resurrection of eternal life, both body and soul, through the incorruption imparted by the Holy Spirit, among whom may I be accepted this day before thee as a fat and acceptable sacrifice, accordingly as thou, the ever-truthful God, hast foreordained, hast revealed beforehand to me, and now hast fulfilled. Therefore also I praise thee for all things, I bless thee, I glorify thee, 
along with the everlasting and heavenly Jesus Christ, thy beloved Son, with whom to thee and the Holy Ghost be glory both now and in all coming ages. Amen. Notice that Polycarp's words are a long prayer of thanksgiving that echoes the great Eucharistic prayers of today. It includes an invocation of the Holy Spirit, a doxology of the Trinity, and the great Amen at the end. And what's amazing is that when the flames reach the body of the bishop, one of the techniques the Romans would use was to go after the bishop. It was like, well, if we kill the leader, then all the followers will get discouraged and go away. So a lot of times it was the bishop that was first on the line, and he was called to you know, be the public witness. So what's amazing is that when the flames reached the body of the old bishop, and he was 86 now, the secretary tells us that the pyre gave off not the odor of burning flesh, but the aroma of baked bread. Polycarp's secretary continued, When he had pronounced this amen, and so finished his prayer, those who were appointed for the purpose kindled the fire, and as the flames blazed forth in great fury, we, to whom it was given to witnesses, beheld the great miracle and we have been preserved that we might report to others what then took place. For the fire shaped itself into the form of an arch, like the sail of a ship filled with the wind, encompassed as by a circle the body of the martyr. And he appeared within it, not like flesh which is burnt, but as bread that is baked, or as gold and silver glowing in a furnace. Moreover, we perceived with such a sweet odor coming from the pile as if frankincense or some other precious spices had been smoking there. At length, when those wicked men perceived that his body could not be consumed by the fire, they commanded an executioner to go near and pierce him through with a dagger. And on his doing so, there came forth a dove and a great quantity of blood, so that the fire was extinguished. And all the people wondered that there should be such a difference between the unbelievers and the elect, of whom this most admirable Polycarp was one having in our own times been an apostle, a prophetic teacher, and the bishop of the Catholic Church, which is in Smyrna. So it didn't take long for the written account of Polycarp's martyrdom to be spread all over the empire. In fact, it was the first of a new literary genre called Acts of the Martyrs. We have Acts of the Apostles, which is a literary genre. There's other acts out there. We have Acts of the Martyrs, and has served to encourage persecuted Christians even to our day. The Eucharistic images and the martyrdoms of Ignatius and Polycarp echo again in the future writings and histories of other martyrs. As we know from court transcripts presumably taken down by pagan Romans, the Christians often replied to the charges against them with lines from the liturgy. They lift up their hands, and when they are sentenced, they say, Deo gratias, thanks be to God. And the story of the martyr Theoninus for example, proceeds with the words verbatim of the Eucharistic prayer, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks to God. The Greek word for thanks there is Eucharistios, so we might read it as looking up to heaven, he offered the Eucharist to God, even as the flames consumed him. In a similar way, the priest Irenaeus cries out in the midst of torture, with my endurance, I am now offering sacrifice to my God, to whom I have always offered sacrifice. And he offered the sacrifice at the Mass, and now he is being offered as the sacrifice. This kind of Eucharistic language is so pervasive in the early church's written records 
that one of the great scholars of early Christianity, Robin Darling Young of Notre Dame, has spoken of the ancient churches having two liturgies, the private liturgy of the Mass and the public liturgy of martyrdom. What is it about martyrdom that makes it so like the Mass? Well, what has Jesus done in the Mass? He's given himself to us, and he has held nothing back. He gives his body, blood, soul, and divinity. He gives himself to us as food. And that's love, the total gift of self. That is the very love the martyrs wanted to imitate. Jesus had given himself entirely to them, and they wanted to give themselves entirely to him. Everything they had, holding nothing back. If Jesus would become bread for them, they would allow the lions to make them the finest wheat for Jesus. So martyrdom was the total gift of self. The Eucharist was the total gift of self. In the Eucharist, Jesus gave himself to us and continues to give himself to us. In martyrdom, they gave themselves totally back to him. But we do know that very few of the total number of ancient Christians died for their faith. His martyrdom was sporadic. So in the overall number, the majority did not become martyrs. So what about them? What about the rest? What was their gift? How did they live the Eucharist? Which is a question, at least today, that's more applicable to us. So not long after Christianity was legalized by Emperor Constantine in 313, St. Jerome noted that some believers were already growing nostalgic for the good old days of the martyrs. (laughs) Easy for them to say, huh? But Jerome stopped such fantasies in, in their tracks. He told his congregation, Let's not think that there is martyrdom only in the shedding of blood. There is always martyrdom. There is always martyrdom. For most of the early Christians, the martyrdom didn't come from lions or fire or the sword. It didn't come from the mob or the gladiator. For most of the early Christians, martyrdom consisted in a daily dying to self and imitation of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus himself tells us this. We'll have a reading from Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to all, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So the early Christians saw this as a command to imitate imitate Jesus, doing it in imitation of Jesus. How did Jesus carry his cross? And that's the way the early Christians saw that that command. And what this what did this mean for them in practical terms? Well, some examples. It meant that they would never eat lavishly as long as others were going hungry. They would never keep an opulent wardrobe while others were dressed in rags. They would never hold back their testimony to the faith as long as any of their neighbors were living in sin or in ignorance of the love of Jesus Christ. Whatever they had, those early Christians gave. They gave of themselves just as the martyrs gave themselves in the arena, just as Jesus gave himself on the cross and just just as Jesus Christ gives himself in the Eucharist. These Christians, in their baptism, were baptized into Jesus' death, as we are, into Christ's own martyrdom. In the Mass, in the Eucharist, they became one with him in the deepest and closest and most intimate bond possible. They were closer to Jesus than they were to their best friends, closer to him than they were to their spouses. They were closer to Jesus than they were to their own parents or their own children. He himself had promised them that they would live in him and he would live in them. And 
with that, we're going to have a reading from John 14, 18 to 20. I think your note, your workbooks say chapter 15, but it should yeah. be 14. So it is chapter 14 is the right one, 18 to 20. So somebody have that reading? I will not leave you desolate. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So that was and is probably the greatest truth of our faith, that in Christ, we are in Christ, we live as sons and daughters of the Eternal Father. We share in his own divine life. In Jesus Christ, we can call God our Father because God is eternally his Father. And we become sharers in God's divine nature. And we're going to have a reading from uh, the second letter of Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through his own glory and excellence, of which he has granted to us his, his precious and very great promises, that through these we may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. Right, partakers of the divine nature. So God gives us everything we need plus a share God's own very nature. Mostly, we understand, through the sacraments and primarily through the Eucharist. And what is this divine nature that we now share in? St. John the Evangelist said it all, summarized it, when he said God is love. God is self-giving, life-giving love. From all eternity, God the Father pours himself out in love for the Son. He holds nothing back. The Son returns that love to the Father with everything that he has. He holds nothing back. And the love that they share is the Holy Spirit. This is the life the martyrs knew even at the moment of their death, maybe especially at the moment of their death. But they themselves have been caught up into that life long before and many times. At Mass, where they joined with their brothers and sisters for the teaching of the apostles and the communion and the breaking of the bread and prayers. Jesus gave himself entirely to them, and they gave themselves in return. And in every Eucharist, Jesus again gives himself entirely to us, and we are invited to give ourselves entirely in return. When we receive the Eucharist, we say, Amen, so be it. And when we do that, when we say, Amen, to the body and blood of Christ, we are accepting and saying yes to the cross of Christ as our own. We are joining ourselves to the family of God in a sense for accepting our own martyrdom. And there is always martyrdom. And St. Paul tells us as much in his letter to the Romans. And we'll have a reading from the letter of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1. And now, brothers, I beg you, through the mercy of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, So these words of Paul spoke to the many future martyrs in Rome where he himself would die by beheading, but his words reached many others as well. Men and women whose sacrifice would become something quiet and hidden and noticed only by God. St. Paul refers to our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit. And in the ancient world, 
temples were not merely shrines, they were also places of sacrifice. And so are we. Our bodies, as temples of the Holy Spirit, are places of sacrifice. And our lives are the offering. Our everyday life can and should be a voluntary sacrifice, a voluntary self-giving, voluntary witness, voluntary martyrdom. The church stresses the need for penance and reparation, mortification, fasting, pilgrimage, almsgiving, and it's really all about self-denial, self-mastery, and ultimately self-possession because we need to possess ourselves in order to give ourselves away, just like Jesus, just like the martyrs. For we are made in God's image, and God is life-giving love, whose human life in Jesus was a self-giving sacrifice. The Mass is that sacrifice where we also are able to place our lives on the altar and be taken up into the Eucharist. All the hours that we spent at our desks and workstations, at our kitchens, our classrooms, can become joined to the Eucharist at Mass. Pontus, a disciple of St. Cyprian of Carthage, gives what we would call the first saint story about his mentor, St. Cyprian. Like so many others, Cyprian was a martyr, but Pontus composed the passionate life of Cyprian because he said the great saint, quote, had, had much to teach independently of his martyrdom. What he did while he was alive should not be hidden from the world. It was important to Pontus that Cyprian's entire life be preserved as a, quote, eternal memory. Pontus echoed the language of the Mass. An eternal memory is exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said, do this in remembrance of me at the Last Supper. The Mass is a remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ. But unlike the memory of Cyprian, it is a real remembrance. The Greek word in this passage is anonesis, more than a mere mental recollection, anamnesis is the making present of Christ's life and death. And in receiving the Eucharist, we are literally, we are literally receiving and become joined to him sacramentally. That gives us the power to live holy lives and good lives and prepares us for good and holy death. That is what we hear in scripture, what we hear, so what we hear in scripture literally becomes part of us in the Eucharistic sacrifice of the new covenant. By remembering Christ in the liturgy and receiving him in the Eucharist, we become part of Christ. In a sense, we become Christ. He commands us to do this because it helps us to experience and live his new covenant with us. We need to remember that we are to be crucified with him so that we can rise with him. We are reminded to become loving, living memories of Christ, to become Christ to the world, to be Eucharist to the world. We are the extension of God's family in the world. This is the path of salvation. St. Paul tells us, speaking about us, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We live like Christ, and our holy brothers and sisters who have gone before us means to die to ourselves on a daily basis through his grace. When the Roman authorities were attempting to get Polycarp to recant his beliefs and so escape death, Polycarp replied, For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. Now how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? In other words, he's saying, Look, I've been living my life this way my whole life. Why should I stop now? And the same is true for us. How does this Eucharistic remembrance, this new covenant sacrifice look 
in the day to day? Well, so I get some more examples. It looks like a mother staying up all night with a sick child, our grandparents up late with the child so the daughter can get some sleep. It looks like a husband working hard, long hours at a task he doesn't particularly enjoy so that his family can know a better life. It looks like a family keeping vigil at a deathbed. It looks like a dying man who musters a smile for the sake of his loved ones, even though he doesn't feel like smiling, and many other things. You can fill your own in. And again, as St. Jerome said, let's not think that there is martyrdom only in the shedding of blood. There is all martyrdom, and that it's our vocation. And this martyrdom, even when it is just the martyrdom of a kindly smile, is a public witness. Our dutiful dedication to our work and our family should be an outward sign of a profound inner sacrifice, a Christ-like gift of ourselves. What we do should be a sacrament of who we are. There's a beautiful passage in the Old Testament that speaks of such a witness. Again, in sacrificial terms. And we're going to have a reading from Wisdom 3, verses 1, and then jump to verses 5 and 7. But the souls of the just are in the hand of God, and no torment shall touch them. Chastised a little, they shall be greatly blessed, because God tried them and found them worthy of himself. As gold in the furnace, he proved them, and as sacrificial offerings, he took them to himself. In the time of their visitation, they shall shine and shall dart about as sparks through stubble. I think most of us are, I've been around long enough that we might recognize where you, where you hear this reading. At funerals, it's a very common reading. So that's the total gift of self. It's what the fathers of the church knew. It's what all the early Christians knew. And it's what God wants us to know for ourselves so that we can become what God wants us to be. There's no other way to be truly happy and fulfilled. We were made to be like God. We were made to be part of his sacrificial self-giving family that's our created destiny today the world maybe more than ever needs witnesses it needs to see people doing in homes and schools and workplaces what those first century Christians in Rome and Jerusalem did living Eucharistic lives and living Eucharistic lives we are living that famous teaching of Saint Irenaeus of Leon our way of thinking is attuned to the Eucharist and the Eucharist in turn confirms our way of thinking. Like the apostles and countless other men and women, fathers of the church like Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, Justin, and others have willingly offered themselves up as a sacrifice to God. They will be the first to tell us that since Christ is the Eucharist, his presence in our lives should affect the way we live our lives and not just the way we live our life. And with that, I've come to the end Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.